The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we worship you right now as our Creator, as the one who made us in your image, the one who names us, and if we are in Christ, the one who has called us out of the darkness and into your kingdom. We confess, Father, a great sin upon your church and upon this culture. We live confused, seeking identity in places that we cannot find it and denying the very identity you give us as image bearers made to worship and serve you. I ask, Father, you would this morning do something miraculous that you would cause every single person in this room to see who they truly are in Christ. No more pretending. No more attempting to identify by the culture or by our feelings. But having you, our Creator, name us because you made us. And indeed, we belong to you. I pray you would use this passage from Ruth 1 to do that great work. Take your word by your spirit and transform us into the image of your son. You're the only one that can do that. We are helpless without you. But we're so thankful that it is your desire to do just that. So bless us now, I pray, with a clear understanding of who we are, why we're here, and what our end is. I ask that you would do that for your glory and for our blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles open, do so right now. Maybe you're following along you're thinking, How, why would he pick such a small passage? Um, it is actually the next scene in our narrative, and, and you'll see why I'm settling on just a few verses. Um, it'll be hopefully made known to you um, quickly. In 1865, Lewis Carroll, who is a 19th century English author, and poet, he published his very famous work, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. You probably know it as Alice in Wonderland. It chronicles the adventures of a little girl who falls into a rabbit hole, and in these adventures, she meets all these anthropomorphic creatures, creatures that are like human, but they're actual creatures. In chapter 5, she runs into the caterpillar, and that is his name, the caterpillar. He's a, a, a fat little guy who smokes a hookah pipe, and he, he sees Alice, and he says this to her, listen, the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence, and at last the caterpillar took the hookah out of his mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice, who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. Alice was having an identity crisis in the rabbit hole, not quite sure who she is anymore. Now, theologians and philosophers, and today, 
psychologists and sociologists have long written about the need for every individual to have an identity, a core sense of self and worth that you know to be true and that is acknowledged as true by others. Having the ability to answer the caterpillar's question, who are you? In fact, many would argue and I would agree that it is a basic human need to know who you are and to be known by others. Especially when we find ourselves in the rabbit hole of life. Especially when everything seems upside down and we're not quite sure what's happening in life. It is essential that your identity is true and lasting. If you've been with us now for the last couple of weeks, we've been, we joined Naomi in Moab with her husband Elimelech and her two sons, Malon and Kilion. And, and we got to a point last week in verse 5 that she's in a crisis. She's having an identity crisis. She fled to Moab looking for security and all she found was heartache. Her husband died. Her sons died. She's left with two daughters-in-law. Neither could give birth. One has gone home. The other one's going to join her. And, and we'll pick up this morning where we left off last week. They're on the road from Moab back to Judah. Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi is, is having an Alice in Wonderland experience. She doesn't know who she is anymore. And I want you, as we work our way through these verses and look at these couple scenes in the book, I want you to just ask and answer one question. Who are you? I want you to ask that as this story develops. And by God's grace, at the end of the sermon, you'll have a better answer than Alice and a better answer than Naomi. And if you are in Christ, you'll have the best answer of all. Only two scenes I want to look at this morning. Number one, scene number one, I call myself Mara. And scene number two, God calls me Naomi. Scene number one, I call myself Mara. Scene number two, God calls me Naomi. Scene number one, look at verse 19. I call myself Mara. Verse 19, the two of them, speaking of Naomi and Ruth, the two of them, they went on, so they're on the road from Moab to Judah until they come to Bethlehem. So they make it into Judah and they get to Bethlehem, and that is Naomi's hometown. It was from Bethlehem that, that she and Elimelech and Malon and Kilion set out 10 years prior to flee from the famine into the land of Moab, the latter part of verse 19. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women of Bethlehem said, Is this Naomi? Now that word stirred, there's great debate amongst the commentators. What, what does that mean? We know what it means. It means a buzz or a hum or an excitement or even an uproar. But they don't know if it's positive or negative. Were the women saying, Oh, it's Naomi. She's the one that left 10 years ago, left us 10 years ago to flee into enemy territory, into Moab. Or were they saying, it's Naomi. She's back, like the prodigal daughter, back in town. I, I, I lend toward the latter for a few reasons, some grammatical reasons and um, vocabulary reasons, but the best reason is this. It seems like they're excited, and she corrects them. They're excited to see her, and she corrects them, and she says, listen, do not call me Naomi. That's not my name anymore. She demands a name change from Naomi to Mara, from pleasant or lovely to bitter. I'm not Naomi. I'm not happy. I am bitter. She's home. 
thankful for that, that's true, but her physical, her emotional, her spiritual state is not pleasant, it is bitter. Look at the latter part of verse 19 again. The women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now we know that in the Hebrew culture, names were significant. Names usually would reveal someone's character or their personality or their identity, who they were, what they were about. So Naomi's name, which means pleasant or lovely, remember that, she can't bear it anymore because her life is not pleasant and it's not lovely. And so she wants her name changed to Mara, which means bitter or to be bitter. She's seeking to self-identify, to give them an understanding of that's not who I am, at least not anymore. And then she tells them why. Latter part of verse 20, look with me. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She doesn't use his proper name, Yahweh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles. She calls him El Shaddai, which there's lots of debate on what it means, but it definitely means almighty, all-powerful, one that cannot be resisted, the host of heaven. And, and she's saying, El Shaddai, the almighty God, whom no one can resist, not even me, he's, he's dealt very bitterly with me. Now, we saw her make a similar statement, if you remember back in verse 13, when she said, the hand of God is against me. But here, she actually uses El Shaddai as the subject of the verb. In other words, Naomi is unapologetically saying, my plight, my struggle, my suffering is God's fault. She is blaming God for her identity crisis. Not on chance, not on bad luck, not on her poor decisions, but simply on God being not so gracious and not so loving. And then she explains why. Look at verse 21. She says, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. I went away full, which is not terribly true. They were fleeing a famine, so she was, really wasn't full, right? But she was full in the sense that she had her husband, and she had her two sons. She had protection, and she had provision. And in their cultural moment, a woman's identity, her worth, her sense of self, was based upon her being married and having children. So she said, I went away full, I was married, and I have my, my children, and I come back, God brought me back how? Empty. I have no identity, I have no sense of self, I have no worth, my husband's dead, my sons are dead, and I'm starving to death. She then rephrases her charge against God, again unapologetically, in courtroom language. Look what she does in the latter part of verse 21. She's gonna solidify her grievance against God being the reason that she's suffering, she says again, why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So she's saying, listen, God has testified against me. He's obviously found me guilty and now I'm suffering as a result of this supposed justice or this punishment. And unlike Job, Job appealed to God to testify in a positive sense. Job said, my witness is in heaven and he will testify for me Naomi says, Yahweh, using his proper term, he's in heaven and he's testifying against me. She doesn't know how. She says, unbeknownst to me, somehow, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, 
All these terrible things keep happening to me, and now here I am with an identity crisis because I have no sense of self or no sense of worth. I'm not a mother. I'm not a wife. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Now, if you've been here for the past two weeks, you know, well, that's not quite true, Naomi. We have tracked you now since you left with your husband and two sons into Moab. And we know that both your husband and you and your sons have been living in rebellion against God's clearly revealed word. We know that. We know that. The audience doesn't necessarily know that. And it appears that Naomi, either she's not aware of it or she's going to suppress it, which we're good at doing, are we not? We're really good at suppressing reasons why we may be suffering, especially if sin is the culprit. So she's right. I mean, she's absolutely right. She has an understanding of the sovereignty of God, bringing her back from Moab to Judah, empty. But her faith is really flawed. It's flawed for two major reasons. One, she's either unable or she's unwilling to see that much of the suffering is a result of her sin. She won't see it. Or she doesn't want to see it. We're not apt to see it. She calls God El Shaddai, the powerful one who cannot be resisted. He's the one that brought this unjust suffering upon her. But there's something else that she misses, which I don't want you to miss in the suffering in your life. She's unable to see that God did all this, letting her go into Moab and bringing her back now empty for her own good. That God would use her suffering and her emptiness to actually bless her, maybe for the first time in her entire life. So Naomi's right. Look at the latter part of verse 21 again. The Lord has testified against her, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon her, but she's wrong about motive. And we know that because we know how the story goes. We know the end of the story, right? His motive was not to punish her. It wasn't to be a severe, unjust, El Shaddai, all-powerful God, saying, see, Naomi, see what I can do. It was purposeful. It was intended indeed to bring her back and to bring her back empty with a, an identity that was lost. Why would he do that? Why would God do that? Why would he bring this woman back empty? You know why. So that he, her God, could fill her with her true identity, with her new identity. Of course, we know that to be in Christ as a daughter of Abraham. That's worth an amen. At least one. Thank you. So she leaves in the fullness of her cultural moment, getting her identity and her sense of self-worth from her husband and her children, being a wife and a mother, and she comes back without either, and she has an Alice-like rabbit hole identity crisis. They call her Naomi. She says, call me Mary. I don't know who I am anymore. In other words, the real problem that Naomi was going through was not just that she was suffering. We see that, right? I mean, she lost her husband. She lost her sons. She's been gone 10 years living in hostile territory, and now she's back. But this was the days of the judges. Things were hard in the days of the judges. There were curses. There were famines. There were, there were oppressors coming in from the outside. So it was normal. Suffering and death was a normal part of life in the days of the judges. This wasn't simply Naomi claiming that her life was hard. She's not this this middle-aged, rich Westerner that brings her BMW to the shop and gets really upset that they have to keep the car an extra week. That's not Naomi. 
She's saying here, I don't have an identity anymore. I'm not a wife, I'm not a mother, and that's how the culture says that I'm worth something, that I have a sense of self. Now every culture prescribes an identity. This one too, my beloved. Every culture tells us our sense of worth and our sense of value. In Naomi's day, it was. In fact, for a woman, it was, are you married? Do you have children? If the answer was yes, it's like, that's your identity. That's your sense of self. That's your value. That's your worth. That was not uncommon and isn't even today in communal cultures. In communal cultures, identity is usually a result of someone's contribution to the community and to the culture. So if you were, if you were to be moved back to Naomi's day and someone said, who are you? If you were to be asked Mr. Caterpillar's question, you would say, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a son. I, I'm, a, I'm a member of this community, I'm a member of this church. You would identify as a member of a communal people. In other words, honor and worth was bestowed by, on those who subjugated themselves and their freedom and their individualism for the greater good. You say, well, that's, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Of course, we're Westerners, right? That doesn't make any sense to us. In the contemporary Western culture, our sense of self, our sense of worth, we've been told now for decades, you have to what? You've got to find it. You've got to discover it. You have to create it. It's, it's not outside. It's not communal. It's not culture. It's in you. And you've got to dig really deep. You've got to find those dreams and those aspirations and those intuitions, and you've got to tap into them, and then you've got to express them. That's how you find yourself. Not only do you have to express them, but you have to do so in such a way that even if it offends family or friends or community, that's okay because you, the individual, you're most important. You must be what? All that you can be. You must be true to yourself, which is a great lie because it's really that saying be true to your feelings. Be true to your, your insides, your, your intuitions. So, in the contemporary Western culture, we, we receive a sense of self or worth or identity, the exact opposite of Naomi's culture. Sociologists call this uh, expressive individualism. You like that? Expressive individualism. You're going to express your identity as an individual based upon how you feel or think or whatever is going on on the inside of you. So self-denial is how someone established worth in Naomi's time Self-expression is how we establish worth in our time, but there's a problem with both. You know that. The problem with both approaches is that you can't know yourself. You can't know your true identity, and a true identity is who you really are. A true identity does not change with time. It's not subject. It's stable to all the circumstances of life, and a true identity is lasting. It goes on forever. The true you both these approaches, communal, individual, receiving identity from the culture or trying to go inside and get it, they both fail because they cannot give us a true, stable, lasting identity. And you know why? Because you were made in the image of God. God gave you your identity. God gave you your name. And, and we know that identity must come from outside. It can't come from the culture, and it can't come from inside of you. It must come from outside of you, from someone else other than culture or you. Now, as you're listening, if you were raised in the Western culture, as I was, 
then some of this probably seems silly to you. Right? You've been told from a very young age, right, that, that you can be all that you want to be. You just have to tap in. You got to find it. You got to discover it. You got to go down deep. And yet, if, you, if we just stop for a moment, and I'd like to just stop for a moment and think about how ridiculous it is to seek your identity from a feeling or intuition inside of you. I'll, I'll just give you just a, a few off the top, and there are so many. How silly is it to try to discover yourself based upon feelings that are in tension with themselves and always changing? I mean, you're looking for a core identity, your true self that is stable and lasting. How do you do that when you're tapping into feelings that are not only in tension with each other, but are always changing, right? I mean, so maybe for 2024, one of your New Year's resolutions was, uh, this year, I'm gonna exercise. This year, I'm gonna get fit. And yet, inside, you also think, yeah, but I, I'm slothful. I wanna be lazy, and I wanna sustain myself on Big Macs and Coke. Well, which one do you pick? Maybe you, you say, you know, I, I'm... I, I'm I'm lonely, and I, I want to be married. I want to engage in the intimacy of marriage, and yet another part of you is feeling that, yeah, but this, the commitment scares me to death. Which one do you pick? Some of you said, I'm going I'm to work hard. I want, I want to I make money. I, I, I want to be rich, and then you realize, yeah, but I know a lot of rich people, and they're not very nice. I don't, I don't, which one do I do? Do I pursue it or do I not pursue it? So the question is, how do you establish a true, stable, lasting identity upon feelings that are not only in contradiction with each other inside of you, but also changing? That's a problem, my beloved. There's another problem. How, how do you create a stable identity when you are always changing? Alice said it, right? I, I think I've changed four or five times I've been in this rabbit hole, and that's true for all of us. And if you've lived any years on this beautiful God's green earth, you have to ask, how many yous have there been? Six, seven, eight? I mean, how, how many Keiths has my poor wife been married to for 34 years? Several, most not good at all. I mean, think about, think about when you were in high school. If you're a little bit older, think about when you are in high school. And be truthful, weren't you an idiot in high school? You, no, you were an idiot in high school. We're all idiots in high school. And then you hit 20 or 30, and your 30-year-old self looks at your 20-year-old self, wow, you were an idiot when you are 22. And you know what? That happens until you die. As you get older, you look back and think, wow, wow, wow. That was me? Yeah, that was you, but you're different now. And so the question is, how do you establish a core identity that is true, stable, and lasting when you're always changing? I don't know how. I'll give, you, I'll give you one more. How do you tap into your inner feelings and intuition and choose yourself, right? Identify yourself when you know that yourself is identified by the culture. Truthfully speaking, we all live in a culture that tells us what to think and how to feel and who we are. Right, so we already said your feelings are in competition with one another, so how do you choose which one to follow? The culture tells you that. It always does. It tells you which feelings to affirm and which feelings to oppress. There was a recent study done about youth in England. Ten years ago, ten years ago in England, this particular area where they were um, doing counseling for young people, ten years ago now, one decade, 250 referrals, mostly boys, for gender dysphoria counseling. 
250 boys 10 years ago confused about their gender identity. In 2021, that number was 5,000. Doubling from the previous year in 2020. You said, well, what happened in 10 years? Not only did it double to five, from 2,500 to 5,000, it was mostly girls and not boys. You know, they go, okay, did suddenly in 10 years, all these girls suddenly start not knowing who they are? Am I a boy? Am I a girl? You said, well, of course not. The culture changed in 20 years significantly. In the West, in the past 10 years, the culture is now not only teaching to and affirming, but rewarding those who struggle with gender identity and switch sides. In other words, no one expresses themselves by themselves. Everybody is a product of the culture. These young women, these 5,000 young women in 2021 who needed gender dysphoria counseling were being told by parents, by educators, this is right, be confused, choose this. And so they chose that. They, that's how they identified the feelings they were going to stick with. The culture was telling them, and so they went. Every culture has a moral grid. That moral grid comes down upon us, and then we look at our feelings, and we say, this one or that one? Then we look at the culture and go, oh, that one, because that's what the culture's telling me. In other words, my beloved, this idea of expressive individualism, of you choosing your identity, it's a complete lie. There's no such thing as choosing who you are. You can't do it if you tried. And yet that's all we tell people that they are to do. We say we're expressing ourselves when in fact we're expressing the culture. So this is, this is the crisis that Naomi finds herself in at the end of chapter one. She's completely undone. She's completely empty. Not because she's suffering. She's empty because her identity's lost. She doesn't know who she is. She used to be identified as a, a wife and a mother, her husband's dead. Her children are dead. She says, I, I don't know who I am. I went away full. I've come back empty. So the question for us as we get to scene number two is, what do we do with this devilish mess we find ourselves in? Naomi was in it. Alice in Wonderland was in it. And you're in it. How do we, if it's not culture and community and self-humiliation, and it's not expressive individualism going inside, finding my feelings, and being who I want to be. If it's neither of those, then how, how do we get an identity? Because everybody agrees you need one. Everybody agrees you have to know who you are in order to get through life and certainly to get through crises when you find yourself in the rabbit hole. Can I give you the answer? Point number two, scene number two, God calls me Naomi. So scene number one was Naomi saying, call me Mara. Scene number two is, God calls me Naomi. She doesn't know this yet, but she's going to realize it. It just made for a really good scene title. All right, here we go. Naomi saw herself as bitter, empty, identity crisis, not a mother, not a son, unable to answer Mr. Caterpillar's question, who are you? She said Mara, but she really was, I, I don't know who I am anymore. But what Naomi did not see, at least not yet, was how God saw her. God saw Naomi as Naomi, as pleasant, as lovely. God saw her infinite value in the midst of her utter despair. He, he's not the El Shaddai 
exercising his almighty power against this sonless widow in exile. He could have, he could have let her die in Moab, starving to death. Right? He could have done that. He could have killed her right along with Elimelech. But he doesn't. He spares her. And he spares her in order to bring her home. He's not El Shaddai to her. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides. He's the God who protects. She doesn't see it yet, but she will. And he brings her home, and he brings her home empty so he can give her, for the first time, a true, stable, lasting identity in the name of Christ. Again, that's an amen response. A new name that would never, ever, ever lead to bitterness or emptiness or an identity crisis again. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So verse 22, we read it as a transitional verse, and it is, if you're doing you know, a really good exegesis of the passage, you say, what, what is this verse about? You're gonna get that, right? They're transitioning from Act 1 to Act 2, from Moab to Bethlehem, from famine to harvest. Right? So we see movements here. But verse 22 is so much more than that. Naomi was saying, listen, I came back empty, but you said, well, wait a minute. We saw last week this incredible covenant promise made by Ruth the Moabite to you, Naomi, to go where you go, lodge where you lodge, die where you die, and your people will be her people, and your God will be your God. What are you talking about, Naomi? You're not alone. You have Ruth. She's not too excited about it. She will be. God did not bring her back empty. He brought her back with the very woman who would reestablish her identity and her namesake leading to David and Christ. Absolutely incredible. The very person God would use to bring Naomi her new identity would be Ruth. Look at verse 22 again. The narrator does something here, and you have to just, I, I never saw this until I had a chance to study it. Look at verse 22 again. Naomi returned, now, now Ruth is the central figure in verse 22. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who, speaking of Ruth now, who returned from the country of Moab. You say, wait a minute. How is Ruth returning to Judah when she's never been to Judah? She's a Moabite. If she was going to return, she'd go back home to Moab. How can a person return to a place they've never been? You say, well, what is that? It Was it a mistake? Did the narrator make a mistake in language? No. So how is she returning if not to a place? You know, I think you know, she's returning to the people and to the God she was purposed to belong to all along. She's returning to her creator. You see, Ruth and Naomi, they both possessed identities that were a result of the fall. Naomi found her identity as a mother and a wife that was affirmed by her community. Ruth found her identity as a Moabite wor- uh, woman who worshipped Kamash. And after the vow she made in the verses prior, her new identity was attached to Naomi. Where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. So her identity was attached vicariously to Naomi. But God, my beloved, listen. God, in the very beginning, when he created, he created man, male and female. In his image, he created them. He created us. In other words, it's, it's God who made us. It's God who gave us our gender, our name, our purpose, and our value. He's the identity giver. 
The culture doesn't choose. You don't choose. God chooses. And that means, my beloved, your identity is not bound to a culture and it's not bound to your feelings. Praise God for that. I mean, truly, if you think for a moment of your identity, the core of who you are being determined by how you feel, well, that, you're going to end up You're going to end up schizophrenic in no time. My feelings go up and down all day long. I don't want my identity attached to them. God is the one who made us what? The identity he gave us, we're image bearers. Unlike any other creature, he made us in his image. Our worth, our value is derived from the fact that our creator God loves us. And your purpose, your The work for you, well, you know, it's to worship and serve and glorify God. That's all answered, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1. Mind-boggling that for, since the beginning of man, and certainly in the Western world, that we're so confused about our identity, when in the first chapter of the good book, we know the answer. We have the answer, and I think most of us know it, We we just don't like it. We don't like the fact that it's God who identifies us. It's God who names us. And so God... Out of his great love and mercy, he brings Ruth and Naomi back, back to his land, his people, and himself so that he might, as their creator, give them their true, stable, lasting identity. He's doing this great work in order to bless them both. So both Naomi and Ruth, they return empty, emptied of their culturally imposed or self-expressed identities, their self-humiliation, their self-expression, and they're ready now. They're ready to come out of the rabbit hole. They're tired of not knowing who they are. They're tired of the identity crisis they are going through. They want a true, stable, lasting identity that cannot be taken away. You say, well, where, where is that? Where, where is that? I don't, we're not there yet. It's a story. We have to let the story unfold. So come back next week. And I'll tell you about the story of their new identities in Christ and how God blesses them accordingly. I want to close, though, by asking you what the caterpillar asked Alice. Who are you? At this very moment, not yesterday, and not what you hope to be tomorrow, right now, who are you? Who names you? Who gives you your identity, your sense of self-worth. And let me ask you this, how close are you to crying out, call me Mara? You said, I, 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 I'm, I'm one job loss away, I'm one stock market crash away, I'm one death of a loved one away from telling people, call me Mara, do not call me Naomi, even though you may be in Christ. I want us to contemplate for a bit Naomi's bitterness and her emptiness And I want you to ask yourself on a daily functional basis, who gives you your identity? Who gives you your sense of worth? I'm talking about that core, that true, stable, lasting identity. Who are you? Because if there's one thing we've learned thus far with Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, and Elimelech, is that crises shakes us to our very core. You want an identity crisis? Go through something hard. And then you'll ask, who am I? How did I get in this rabbit hole? What is going on with my life? You have to be named by God. God must name you in Christ. God must name you. It can't, 
God must name you in Christ, and the reason it must be Christ is it can't just be anybody, right? You can't just have someone come up to you and give you a name and give you an identity and say you're worthy. It must be someone who knows you to the bottom, as Tim Keller used to say, and loves you all the way to the top. Right? It, mu- it must be someone who knows you through and through, all your faults, all your sins, all your blemishes, and loves you anyway. Otherwise, if they didn't really know you, they'd say, you're worthy, I love you, and you'd say, yeah, but you really don't. You really don't. If you knew me, if you knew my thoughts, if you knew what I was planning on doing tomorrow, you wouldn't think I was worthy, you'd think I'd worth less, and you certainly wouldn't love me. So the person who names us must be someone who knows us through and through and loves us anyway, and it must be someone that, that we esteem, right? If someone comes to you and gives you an identity and a sense of worth and value, and that someone is a Bernie Madoff, right, or Jeffrey Epstein, you're like, oh, oh, I can't receive identity from you. You're lost. It, it must be someone who is also praiseworthy. There's that, that great part in the Lord of the Rings, the Twin Towers. Do you remember when Sam reveals to Faramir that, that Frodo has the ring of power? And, and Frodo's not happy that Sam did this. And Faramir's response is beautiful. He's, he doesn't have any desire for it. And, and so Sam says this to him. Sam says, um, and it's just a great scene. Sam, Sam praises Faramir for not wanting to take the ring for himself, to which Faramir replies, the praise, that's such a great line, memorize it. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy, the praiseworthy one praising you is above all rewards. It's heaven if the one who is praising you is praiseworthy. And so whoever names us, whoever gives us worth and praise must be praiseworthy himself. And, and that person must be someone who will never, ever let you down. You want a true, stable, lasting identity? It must be this person knows you and yet loves you, is worthy of praise himself, and will never let you down. And they go, well, who could that possibly be? Hmm. Who has all the requisites necessary to give you a true, stable, lasting identity forever and ever. You know, you know it's Christ. Only Jesus can name you. And Jesus specifically, my beloved, listen, he's able to name us, he's able to give us a new identity in the midst of chaos while we're in the rabbit hole, not knowing who we are. He's able to do this because he was willing to have God deal bitterly with him the perfectly lovely, true Naomi, sinless son of God became what? Became Mara on the cross for us. Became bitter on the cross for us. You see, see Jesus, the son of God, he, he emptied himself as the darling of heaven and he came to this wretched place. He took on flesh. He made himself a man to become your servant. Your servant the second person of the holy triune God became your servant so that you who made yourself empty, you made yourself empty just like Naomi, you engaged in sin and rebellion against God, you've spent your whole life trying to identify yourself, have you not? You've looked to the culture, you've looked to family, you've looked inside, you've looked everywhere trying to be who you wanna be and not who God made you to be. 
Christ came to set you free from such nonsense. Husband, wife, scholar, entrepreneur, successful, wealthy, popular, you, you, you. He came because you're empty. He became empty to make you full, give you a new identity. He was testified against. And even though sinless, he was found guilty because he bore our sins. And he received what? The full calamity of the wrath that you deserved. So that on judgment day, God will testify that you are exonerated. That you are pardoned. So that on judgment day, your calamity can be exchanged for eternal glory with our heavenly father. Jesus did all this to rename you from rebellious sinner deserving of judgment to what? To true Naomi's. You realize that. If you know Christ, you're a true Naomi. You are pleasant. You are lovely in the eyes of God. That's your name. God gives it to you in Christ. He makes you worthy in Christ. My friends, to be named by Christ, to be loved and affirmed and adored and considered worthy by God because of Christ, that is heaven. That's an identity that cannot be shaken. That's an identity that will never lead to emptiness, never lead to bitterness or despair. And when you find yourself in the rabbit hole, you'll know exactly how to get out because Christ has given you your name. If you know that Christ has forgiven you, then the old you is dead, is it not? The old yous, maybe we should say. They're all dead. You've been made alive in Christ, and it's what? It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. That's who you are if you're in Christ. Forever a son or daughter of the kingdom, forever a member of the family of God, forever a citizen in God's kingdom, forever a ruler with Christ, forever, I will listen, forever a friend of God, forever and ever a friend of God. If you're in Christ, that's who you are. You want the praise of the praiseworthy. Jesus Christ is the one who is praiseworthy. You want his praise. You want his adoration. It comes by grace through faith in him, in the praiseworthy one. You know this. I know you know this. The problem is not knowing. The problem is how do we get it in? I mean, how do we, how do we get this truth of who we really are in Christ so deep into our soul that every movement in our life, every crisis we experience, that comes out first? Christ named me. I know who I am. Not defaulting to husband, wife, successful, rich, poor. If you can't get your identity from the culture and you can't get it from inside yourself and it must be in Christ, then Christ must be at the top of your playlist. What do I mean by that? Years ago, I was um, ministering to a good friend, actually. He was a member of this church years ago whose wife left him. And we spent a lot of time together and, and I tried to work him out of, of the marriage gone, gone awry. And uh, 
he, he just kept playing the same tune over and over. He kept saying, I don't understand. I was faithful and he was. I showed her love. I showed her protection and provision. He says, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God, very much Naomi, why would God do this to me? Why would God do this to me? He became like Naomi. He became bitter and angry and in many ways empty. And as I continued to counsel him and I continued to bring the gospel to him, I said, but who are you in Christ over several weeks? He'd say, yeah, I know that's good, but. I know it's good that I'm in Christ, but I want to be her husband. In other words, he he exchanged his identity in Christ for her, and she was not coming back, and he had no way out of the rabbit hole. He knew he was stuck. His playlist was wrong. Right? We all have identities, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, employers. And we all have these identities and they're all in there. But your identity in Christ has to be the song that's always playing. It has to be at the top of your list all the time. And that means somehow, if you're in the midst of a crisis like this, this dear friend of mine, you have to bring that tune up to the top. I'm in Christ. My identity is in Christ. I'm an image bearer of God designed to serve and worship him. I am deeply loved. I am worthy because of Christ. Again and again and again, your whole life, number one on iTunes, has to be your number one song. So when you begin to play all those others and you find yourself in the rabbit hole, that brings you back up to the top. In other words, you have to empty yourselves and strive to empty yourselves of all those identities that don't really identify you. When the culture tells you, and this is the tune the culture plays, and we listen to it, I'm successful if I have this degree or I'm valuable if I get that promotion or I'm a worthy mother if I keep my house cleaned and my children fed or those times when you Impose an identity upon yourself based upon your feelings. I'm worthy because what? I'm smart. I'm worthy because I'm, I'm beautiful. I'm worthy because I'm healthy or I have friends. I'm worthy because I, I, don't, I don't do what my friends do. They, they get drunk and they have sex. I don't do that. I'm worthy. I'm worthy because all my friends are in debt and, and I'm not. I'm debt free. I'm worthy because I go to church, read my Bible, and I pray. And my friends don't. I'm worthy. You have to take the identity given to you by God which is achieved and not received. It is achieved by Christ and then given to you and put at the top of your playlist. Especially when you get bitter. Especially when you find yourself in the rabbit hole and especially, my beloved, when you begin to accuse God for your hardship. That is not only a stupid thing to do, it's dangerous to accuse God for your hardship and blame him. You must play Christ in your heart, in your mind, in your soul every single day because when you do, you worship him and when you worship him and you endure him, you'll find your identity in him. Can I, can I tell you a really quick story before I close? You know, I can go 20 more minutes, is that what you just said? I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> you know I'd like to, there's so much here. Oh, 
Um, I had a student in 1993, Cupertino High School. Sweet young man. I left, I went over to Anza and started teaching there. And then I left Anza and I started pastoring here. 10, 15 years had passed, I'm not quite sure. Back when my office was over in one of the houses, there's a knock on the door and I open the door and this young man says, Mr. Booth, I know it's been a long, long time and you probably don't remember me and I said his name. I'm not gonna tell you his name, but I said his name. I said, I remember you, I said his name, I said his class and I told him where he sat in my class. Not because I have a great memory, he was just a pretty memorable kid. (laughs) There are some you never forget. He was in trouble, he needed counsel. And he came around lunch, I was let's go have lunch. So we sat down and we had lunch and I, and I tried helping him through his struggle. He sent me an email the next day and he said, Mr. Booth, I cannot tell you how much it meant to me that you named me, that you remembered my name. My beloved, if a sinful man like myself, simply by remembering someone's name, can give them a sense of worth, how much more Christ who died for you to give you your name and your value and your worth by his blood. Infinitely more. If you're like Alice right now and you're unable to answer the question, who are you this morning? If your identity is not in Christ or you say it is but you know deep down that it's not, if you've been shaped more by the culture or more by your feelings that I will call you this morning out of the rabbit hole, get out of the rabbit hole and go back to Judah, go back to Bethlehem like Naomi and Ruth and know that you were created in the image of God for God. Go back by seeing Christ, confessing your sins and putting your faith in him. Have him give you the name that you were made for. And if you're in Christ this morning, and you know you're in Christ, but your identity, you've been struggling, and you're calling yourself Mara, stop, you're Naomi. It doesn't matter the struggles you're going through right now, how hard they are. It doesn't matter how much you're blaming God for those struggles. You need to know that in Christ, you're Naomi, you're pleasant, you're lovely in the eyes of God if you're in Christ. You have the praise of the praiseworthy one. It's been given to you. And so live in light of your new identity. Embrace that in Christ. Remind yourself of it in Christ instead of becoming bitter. I learned something about Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, last night. And I wanted to share it with you. And then I will close, I promise. He was a deacon in the Anglican Church. And when you read Alice in Wonderland, it's called nonsense literature, and there is a particular type they were trying to, you read it and you think, wow, meh, was that guy on something? Because that's a weird story, (laughs) right? He was a deacon in the Church of England. He wrote this before he died. I want you to listen to it and ask, can you say the same this morning about yourself? Just listen. He wrote, I believe that when I came to lie down, I'm sorry, I believe that when I come to lie down for the last time, if I keep hold of the great truths Christ taught, our own utter worthlessness and his infinite worth, 
that he has brought us back to our one father and made us his brethren, so brethren to one another we are. He said, I I shall have all I need to guide me through the shadows of death. Most assuredly, I accept the full doctrines of the faith that Christ died to save us so that we have no other way of salvation open to us but through his death, and that is by faith in him and through no merit of ours that we are reconciled to God. And then he said, and most assuredly, I can cordially say, I owe all to him who loved me and died on the cross of Calvary for me. Lewis Carroll made it out of the rabbit hole. He knew who he was, and he knew his eternity in Christ. Do you? Do you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by your grace. The mercy that you displayed in Ruth and Naomi's life, bringing them out of their cultural identities and bringing them into Christ, I pray you would humble us that way too. Show us the absolute foolishness of trying to find our identity, our sense of self, or our sense of worth in anyone or anything other than Christ our Savior. I ask that you would bless us as a church and that you would cause the number one tune in our list to be Christ crucified. When we find ourselves struggling, I pray, Lord, we turn to Him and we find our identity in Him. Do that for us, Father, that we might walk through this life not only moving through the difficult times well, but displaying your glory for all the world to see, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.